Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, of course, but coming to you all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet, all of which is a far cry from when this show began in January of 2006, so more than 14 years ago. Then I was on the rather zany but brilliant talk sport radio station. And you can still see some of the best encounters on YouTube uh, from those days. Then the show migrated to the United States, a forerunner actually of what's happening now. It was transferred to uh, a WBAIA, WBAI, which is part of the Pacifica network uh, and based in Wall Street as it happens in New York City. And then back to talk radio, uh, where uh, our luck ran out with the um, uh, state censor, otherwise known as Ofcom. And then immediately we bounced back on this glorious, utterly glorious platform for which I thank every day RT and Sputnik, because now no more local radio for us. Now we are talking to people who understand English in every part of the world, and even some in the United States who are not quite so great at the old English. We have something here, an open university of the airwaves. It is a college of knowledge. There are no tuition fees, and you're encouraged to speak back to the teacher. That'll be me, even though I'm actually almost entirely uneducated in any formal sense. When I left school, I went to work in the Michelin tire factory to learn how to make Michelin ZX radial tires. Most of my adversaries in Parliament, I used to say, could not even change one if they had a puncture on the highway. But I was proud to make them. I make this point because any day now, the factory in which I worked Michelin Tires in Dundee in Scotland will close its doors for the last time. And I, for one, am very sad about that. When I look around at the industrial dereliction uh, in this country, the way that we have been systematically de-industrialized by our rulers, I understand why a big section of the British working class is so utterly alienated from the society in which they live in. Many of them, of course, are victims of false consciousness. They imagine uh, that the factory closed or the shipyard closed or the mine closed uh, because of people with faces darker than them, uh, because people who pray differently to them have arrived in this country in the interim. But nothing could be further from the truth. A theme 
to which I shall return. We'll be talking, of course, about the potential for race war uh, which exists in this country and more particularly in the United States of America. And I'm here to caution against such a race war because race is actually an entirely manufactured concept. Uh, the DNA of a black man and a white man are entirely, entirely identical. In fact, a lot of white men, me included, when we go on holiday, we lie out on a sun lounger trying to become a bit darker, a bit more like them. It is one of the most absurd elements of false consciousness uh, that people can be so easily turned against each other on the basis of colour. There are many others, but colour is the one we're fixated on this weekend after the shocking scenes in London. And I'm no longer shocked by the scenes I'm watching uh, from the United States. But for worldwide viewers and listeners, what happened yesterday uh, was a group of people calling themselves patriots, although a disturbingly high number of them were giving Adolf Hitler salutes. Confused? They are absolutely confused. And that's one of the issues that the rest of us have to face. A substantial section of the British working class through this false consciousness continually operated on by a malignant, cancerous, so-called mass media, have been twisted into imagining that Abdul, who runs the news agent on the corner, or Leroy, uh, who teaches your kid football uh, uh, in the gym hall, are somehow the enemy. When in fact, we all have the same enemies. In fact, even in the time of slavery, we all had the same enemies. The British working class didn't enslave anybody. They were themselves the wage slaves of the slavers. The slavers treated the slaves much worse, of course, and they were literally owned property, but the lives of the wage slaves in the 18th and 19th century and indeed in a very considerable part of the 20th century, were not all that far removed uh, from the economic and social position of the colonized peoples around the world. And so, as a lifelong anti-imperialist and the child and grandchild of lifelong anti-imperialists, I am not guilty of colonialism or of slavery. And that goes for the vast majority of white people in this country, and for that matter, in the United States. Am I against, therefore, Black Lives Matter? Absolutely not. I'm 100% in support of it. As I pointed out in another broadcast earlier this week, if your wife asks you if you love her, it's not the right time to say, I love everybody. If your colleague tells you their father died, it's not the right thing to say, well, everybody's father dies. It might be true, but it isn't the right thing to say. It's called empathy. You have to empathize 
uh, with a section of the human population who are the descendants of people who were dragged in chains from their own countries, deposited in those chains in another, if they were lucky enough to get across the ocean without dying and being tossed in the drink like Edward Colston's statue. Deservedly was in Bristol uh, just the other weekend. But if Black Lives Matter was going to change anything, uh, then Nike and Mercedes and corporate capitalism and high net worth individuals would not be giving them millions of pounds. This is an obvious point which too many have missed. Now, they're doing that because they want to encourage, let's be charitable to them, behavioral change amongst uh, the white population and its state and local security apparatus. Uh, that's entirely praiseworthy. That is entirely a demand that we must all associate with particularly in the United States, but not exclusively in the United States. It seems that many of our police officers are not just unfit for the job in that they've eaten too many donuts, and a remarkable number of them appear to have done that, but unfit because of their racial and political attitudes to their jobs, and many thousands many, many thousands of dead people, mainly people of color, are in the ground as testimony uh, to that. So I support behavioral change, but it's not enough. Because if you don't change the actual political and economic system in which we live, then all that will be is a trifle more polite and probably only on the surface towards each other. A good thing, necessary, but not remotely sufficient. And that point I made, I'm going to restate. If Black Lives Matters was going to change anything systematic in our society, corporate capitalism would not be right now burning the midnight oil, trying to absorb it and co-opt it. It follows, therefore, uh, if fundamental change is necessary, that many of the activities now being pursued with extraordinary vigor are at best a blind alley and at worst likely to deepen the chasm uh, that exists in many parts of Britain. Uh, based on ethnic origin, based on color, and based on creed. It's the responsibility of all of us to try and unite and fight against the system which oppresses all of us and will go on doing so even if everybody suddenly becomes really polite, mannerly, gentlemanly uh, towards everybody else. We need to focus on a change that matters. Change that matters. That's what I have been fighting for all of my life. Now, 
Peter Hitchens, an authority on many things, and a widely read columnist in Britain's biggest newspaper, and a man of high standards, uh, not just literary high standards, but standards of behavior, a man I respect, although fundamentally disagree with, opined at great length today in his blog that the left has taken over Britain and that the country is lost to the left. He thinks the left control the BBC. He thinks the left control the mass media. He thinks the left control the civil service. He thinks the left control the police. He thinks the left are in charge of everything. Uh, but that's because of how he defines the left. If instead of the left, he had said liberals, small l, liberals are in control of Britain, he would have had a point. And that is one of the reasons for the mass alienation that we see in our country, in the United States today. You see, I want a culture change. I want a cultural revolution. But I ain't no liberal, bruv. I believe in things that Peter Hitchens believes in and that many of you watching and listening may not. I believe in patriotism. I believe in order, in discipline, in family, not just one's own children uh, for whom we have a lifelong responsibility, uh, but for one's parents who should be living with us. And we must demand state policy on the tax system that allows our parents uh, to be living with us and not farmed out to a granny farm somewhere only to perish because of the grotesque incompetence of our government and the greed for profit of some of those who own and operate those granny farms. I believe in defense. I believe in having an armed uh, force to protect us. I just don't think we need an armed force to go around attacking other people. I believe in having a police force. You'll never catch me demanding that we defund the police. And it is true uh, that the liberal nostrum of individualism has spread throughout our country to the extent that it is the prevailing orthodoxy. Well, I am not an individualist. I'm not a liberal. And I'm not a libertarian. And to an extraordinary extent, these two apparently disparate currents of thought actually have conflated around the coronavirus issue and other issues too. I believe in us and always. Not just me and now, us and always. Us together in the best and most practicable unit that we can construct, a unit that we can democratically control, a unit that can democratically take charge of our own destiny. 
independent, not a slave to anyone else, not following the diktat of anyone else. That's the culture change that I want to see in this country. And if we'd had it, the factories wouldn't have closed. The mines would not have closed. The workshops, the shipyards would not have closed. And working class life in this country would not be the hell it is for millions and millions of working class people. And if that were so, they would not be out on the streets looking for Muslims to attack, black people to attack, people that look or act different to them to attack. That's going to be a big theme of this evening. And I want to hear your point of view on it by phone, uh, by email, and on the Twitter feed. Now, uh, Conchita Sarnoff, I'm very glad to make your acquaintance. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, uh, I mentioned before you joined us that I've now watched uh, Epstein Filthy Rich twice uh, on uh, Netflix, and my major takeaways from it, aside from the monstrous injustice done to the victims of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell and their rich and famous friends, was that there was more to this story uh, than that, uh, that uh, this was an operation uh, that was going on, uh, that rich and powerful people uh, were being attracted to the sordid goings-on in Epstein's multiple residences precisely to entrap them uh, so that uh, political or other forms of blackmail uh, could then be deployed. What's your take on that, Conchita? You're an expert on the case. Well, first of all, George, thank you very much for having me on your show. Um, as you know, I have been an advocate uh, on behalf of victims of human trafficking since 2006. And it was because of my investigations of other cases that I stumbled into the Jeffrey Epstein case in 2009. And the fact that uh, Glenn Maxwell and uh, Jeffrey Epstein were acquaintances for more than 20 years. Um, I know very much about this case, not only from my investigation, but also from my relationship with Glenn Maxwell and with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, that said, um, to answer first your question, the Netflix documentary uh, in my view, I did not participate. I willingly did not participate. And the reason is um, I, I had uh, certain trepidation um, concerning that documentary. Secondly, um, I, I found that there were many inaccuracies and gaps and misinformation. Um, I can name you some examples. But um, you are absolutely correct in that the travesty of justice uh, and the level, the peddling of influence at the highest levels of government were, are, continue to be terrifying. For me, it was the Jeffrey Epstein case after having investigated many, many human trafficking cases, uh, particularly child sex trafficking cases. Um, it was the Jeffrey Epstein case that for me became, and the reason that I've invested 10 years of my life 
uh, following this particular case because I knew that this case contained all the elements necessary for our governments, and I say that in plural, um, to not only create new laws, but enforce existing laws. Uh, for example, in the United States, we have, uh, since the year 2000, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, that's TVPA. And TVPA was uh, signed under President Bill Clinton, and it was enacted in the state of Florida, where Jeffrey Epstein was first arrested in the year 2000. So why didn't the government um, actually enforce TVPA? Well, uh, as you, in your country, you have several laws as well, not the TVPA, but similar laws. Uh, those laws rarely are enforced. And so for me, the driving force behind this case, uh, and the reason for me this is the most important case is because it brings together elements of injustice, elements of abuse of power, elements of influence peddling, of cronism, uh, even in fact the, this issue, particularly in the United States, of campaign finance reform. So for me, this is the critical case. Uh, it not only spans three continents, uh, it spans well over a decade, multiple jurisdictions, and it includes a prince, it includes a former president of the United States, a former prime minister of Israel and other opinion leaders that have for so many years been influential in the policymaking arena. So um, it is very important that we pay attention to the Epstein case for all the right reasons. Uh, and those reasons are begin and end with the rights of children and the rights of victims. That is very important, George. And to me, that is why I wrote Trafficking. I was the first one to publish a book in 2016, April 2016, after 27 publishers turned me down. And um, I was the first one to break the story wide open in a six-part series uh, in the Daily Beast between the years 2010 and 2015. Um, the former prosecutor, Alex Acosta, handed me that letter that recently, I think it was 2017 or 18, when the Miami Herald published their version of the Epstein story, um, you know, all of a sudden found the letter. Well, that letter has been online since Alex Acosta, the former labor secretary, forced to resign in 2019. Uh, that, that letter has been online since March of 2011. And in one of my most recent conversations with Professor Alan Dershowitz, um, after he and I, you know, there was a silence between us for nine years uh, because of the Daily Beast series, um, he said to me, the negotiations for the non-prosecution agreement were made at the federal level, meaning they were made at the Department of Justice by three individuals and the power was removed from Alex Acosta immediately because it was such a high profile case. And so the individuals who actually negotiated the non-prosecution agreement
were the Attorney General of the United States in 2007. Who was that? The, well, it began with Alberto Gonzalez, the uh, first Hispanic Attorney General in the United States. He, as you know, left the administration, the uh, President George W. Bush's administration, September of 2007. And Michael Mukasey then became the uh, Attorney General following Mr. Gonzalez's uh, leave. The head of the criminal division at the time was Miss Alice S. Fisher, and then the deputy attorney general, who at the time was Mr. Mark Phillip. Um, I have spoken to Mr. Gonzalez. I spoke briefly to Ms. Fisher, and I have not been able to speak to Mr. Phillip, Mark Phillip. So um, all this, of course, will be in my upcoming book, uh, which is a sequel to Trafficking. Um, and, um, you know, perhaps the public and hopefully the opinion leaders who will read my book will perhaps better understand why this case is so important. Tell and me, it's tell not me this, uh, Conchita. Uh, on the face of it, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, yes. uh, certainly at that time, uh, was uh, not a well-known uh, person. Uh, he was an ill-educated, undereducated, uh, huckster, uh, good at using other people's money, uh, particularly the underwear uh, mogul Wexner's money, the Victoria's Secrets man. Uh, why would all these mighty figures at the federal level in the U.S. government be negotiating a non-prosecution uh, uh, deal uh, in the Jeffrey Epstein case. Can you think of a reason? That is such an excellent and critical question, George. Um, I believe that the short answer is money. He was paying a dream team of attorneys. I mean, just just look at the, the attorneys that he had on, on pay, beginning with Professor Dershowitz, who was who's an appellate attorney. Okay, so he he was not, uh, you know, he cannot take on a case from the beginning. He takes on the case on appeal. But you had, uh, of course, George Lefcourt. Uh, you had Martin Weinberg, um, Jack Goldberg. Um, you had Kenneth Starr, Jay Lefkowitz. It was, in fact, Kenneth Starr, as you remember, the Solicitor General during uh, President Bill Clinton's uh, impeachment. Impeachment, with you know, because of the Lewinsky, uh, because of the Clinton-Lewinsky affair. Um, so Kenneth Starr and Jay Lefkowitz negotiated uh, Epstein's uh, non-prosecution agreement. But at, at the state level, when the case first goes to the state attorney's office, it was in fact Barry Kirshner who wanted Epstein's case to go away immediately. And he ordered a misdemeanor. And it was because of Barry Kirshner's misdemeanor that the case goes to the feds. Otherwise, had Barry Kirscher decided that Epstein should go to jail, as he should have, um, the feds would not have gotten involved. Well, of but course, uh, if, uh, if he'd gone to jail, then uh, a lot of poor girls, children, we've got to be clear about this, 
Many of the, the uh, young girls that were uh, featured in the documentary uh, were uh, 13 and 14 years old when Maxwell yes. and Epstein began sexually abusing them. That means raping them. Rape yes. is because a child cannot consent uh, to sexual activity Correct. with an adult. So they were raping uh, these uh, children. And so those responsible for not putting him to prison as he should and would have gone uh, have now a heavy responsibility uh, on uh, their shoulders for all the other children uh, that were subsequently raped and abused uh, by this uh, pair. And now, Conchita, I know uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. I played uh, a role in, in the bringing down of her father, the late Robert Maxwell. Uh, but I don't know, Epstein, you said you had uh, some knowledge, personal knowledge of uh, both of them. Can you give us a picture of what that grotesque duo uh, were like? Uh, yes, I, I, I shall. But let me just begin with uh, by, by just adding a comment to your last statement, which is very important. Um, you know, the fact that um, not only the state attorney has blood on his hands today, uh, I believe. I also believe that, unfortunately, because I come from, you know, my my family history very is very much entwined with a media family uh, in the United States. And so I have deep respect and love and admiration for uh, most of the investigative journalists uh, uh, today and, 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 and in the past, but I must say that uh, the media did not help. When I took this case to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, uh, I could go, the Miami Herald, in fact, I took it, I brought them the case, I brought them the files, nobody, no one wanted to pay attention to me or to this case. And I, the only woman who had the courage to take a look at the case, to take a look at the files and tell me we're, we're going forward was Tina Brown, who was at the then editor of the Daily Beast. So I, I wanted to add that because that's very, very important. If it weren't for Tina, perhaps we wouldn't even be where we are today. And I, and I want to publicly thank her. Uh, now, back to your question. Uh, I met Ghislaine and Jeffrey more or less at the same time in the early 90s uh, when I, I met Jeffrey Epstein first. And um, he at the time was not uh, dating Ghislaine Maxwell. And I met uh, Ghislaine a few years later uh, through a mutual friend. I met both of them through, through uh, uh, mutual acquaintances and a mutual friend. And um, I must say that at the very beginning, of course, you know, you're, um, I, I didn't know Epstein. So the only thing I knew uh, at the very beginning was that here was a man, um, he, he, when he came to my home, which was the first time we met, he played the piano. I had a piano and he played beautifully and he, he was charming, I, I must say. And, uh, you know, a man of many interests um, and uh, he seemed nice enough. Um, curious enough so I thought he was an intelligent man and and we ended up seeing each other at different events etc and then I met Ghislaine Maxwell a few years later and um, she still was not dating him at the time and I'm um, and she too was quite charming 
far more educated than than Jeffrey Epstein, um, and 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 a woman who seemed, you know, um, to have the pulse on things. Also highly curious, vivacious, you know, multilingual. Uh, highly educated and and so uh Galen and I became friendly uh pretty much she knew of my uh former uh husband's family and and of course I knew of her family and and so uh, it became uh, uh an acquaintanceship and we would see each other at events and etc so when I found out that they were dating um and uh, I was quite surprised I didn't think that Epstein uh I didn't think uh Ghislaine Maxwell would would uh, uh like someone like Epstein. I just it didn't it didn't occur to me that they would be a couple. And then of course, you know, you realize that Ghislaine must have suffered a great deal after her father uh passed. And I think Jeffrey to her was more of a savior, uh, a protector, someone who took over the role of father. And I do believe because she did tell me at one point that she was in love with him and wanted to marry him. And I believed her. Uh there was no reason not to. And the times that I did see them together, I certainly didn't see them with underage girls. Uh otherwise I would have, you know, screamed loud and clear way before 2009. So I never saw them uh I never when I went to his home I in Palm Beach, I never saw anything untoward. um you know it was shocking it was shocking to find out uh later but one thing and i wanted to mention this one red flag i was at the clinton global initiative in 2007 and um i was speaking to a former president of latin america and um gelen came from the back um and she picked me up as i was speaking to the president and i found that so shocking uh and and just so improper given the the venue where we were and obviously this i was speaking to someone who was a head of state and then i realized when he looked at me in a certain way that oh my goodness there's something here that i don't quite understand and he asked me the the former president said to me how do you know glen maxwell but the way he asked me being a latin man i know you know i i the nuances are there and so i picked up on the nuance and i realized oh there's something here that there's something here that's unusual and um and so that was 2007 i saw galen again i think uh one more time in 2009 and then that was it i was off and running uh, on this investigation and of course you know the rest is history i don't know yeah sure uh, where do you think she might be now and why is no one looking for her what a great question another great question uh i i believe she is in a in an unextraditable country as you know she is both a british and a french citizen she is not an american citizen so um she there aren't any criminal cases against her I, i you know i'm sure you know this and so the fact that there are only civil cases um points to um a rather interesting phenomena in that because according to my conversation again with professor dershowitz um the statute of limitations is such that i don't think elen maxwell can be criminally charged she has not been criminally charged so far all of the cases against elen maxwell are civil cases which means that the 
the plaintiffs are asking for compensation, that is financial compensation. Uh, I don't know if there will be a criminal case filed against her, at which point I would assume that the Department of Justice would force an extradition from wherever she is. She's certainly not going to come near the United States. Well, um, she's not in Britain. Uh, she's not in America, it would appear. Might, might no. she be in Israel? Uh, well, I don't know if Israel would be the right venue for her. I, I would think more somewhere in the Middle East. That is, there are only nine countries in the world where you, the United States cannot extradite. But isn't it interesting, George, that... You know, as you might have heard, the Attorney General William Barr said the other day publicly on a television show that he is looking to interview Prince Andrew uh, simply for, quote, evidence. Uh, that means that no criminal charges pending, just simply the Attorney General and the Department of Justice in the United States want to find out what Prince Andrew knows and what, quote, evidence he can provide. Now, if Prince Andrew, who was the only one who pointed fingers at Ghislaine Maxwell, beside the plaintiffs, of course, beside the victims, who in their complaints are all pointing fingers at Ghislaine Maxwell, um, why? Why, in fact, is the Department of Justice, why is the Home Office in the UK not bringing Ghislaine in? More importantly, she is a citizen of your country. She is not a citizen of our country, and there are no criminal charges against her. The other, the other situation, and I think this is an important one, is that uh, Virginia Roberts, um, Virginia um, Roberts Jufre, the young lady, the survivor, and the young lady who claimed that she was uh, sexually abused by Prince Andrew, she claims she was 17 years old in the UK, which would make her of age, meaning she was age of consent in the UK, because 17 is age of consent, so it is not a crime no, in but, the UK. But, but if she was in the UK, she'd oh, be oh. trafficked to the UK oh, exactly, from a exactly. country me, where 17 is not of age. Hold on. Let me get to that. Yes, exactly. That's my point. That is my point. So my point is, she claims that in the UK she was 17, and the first time that she was sexually abused by Prince Andrew in London, she was 17. Well, in London, that would make her of age. However, however, in the US, because she came from Florida, she was not age of consent. In Florida, age of consent is 18. And then she claims that she also was sexually abused by Prince Andrew in New York and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Well, either of those, New York is 18, and, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, U.S. Virgin Islands is also 18. It is. Last so, question, because uh, we're running out of time, Conchita. The, uh, the world uh, is puzzled uh, that uh, a prisoner so important uh, as Jeffrey Epstein uh, facing what would have been the trial of the 21st century so far, one which would have drawn in the names, 
uh, of all these powerful people that we've been talking about was able to commit suicide and thus obviate any possibility of embarrassing uh, court proceedings. Do you believe that he committed suicide? I do not believe he committed suicide. One week following his arrest on July 9th, 2019, I was speaking to an active federal agent, that is an active FBI agent. And the agent said to me on the telephone, Conchita, he will not make it to trial. There are towels on the inside. I quote, that's all I have to say. Well, it's powerful uh, enough, uh, and sometimes uh, brevity is the soul and all of that. A very, very powerful piece of testimony that. Uh, Conchita, sound off the best of luck with your new book and for all the work that you have done on this, all decent people in the world, thank you. Conchita Sarnoff, Alliance to Rescue Trafficked Victims. Now, it's our birthday, and I'm looking longingly at this cake uh, which my wife has provided, uh, but there's no uh, um, candle on it, so we need to blow out the uh, one uh, candle if someone can get me that. And in these non-smoking holes and days, uh, get me a lighter to light it with. Let's take uh, a break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. You're watching the Mother of All Talk Shows on all platforms on our birthday, uh, the first birthday in this incarnation uh, of this now global media event. And we've now uh, got to interview uh, several uh, presidential candidates uh, or would-be presidential candidates for the presidency of the United States. One such is Howie Hawkins, who is seeking the Green Party's nomination uh, for president. As I've said uh, many times, nothing speaks to the decline of the United States uh, than the contest, the putative contest, uh, of Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Uh, seldom could my old adage of two cheeks of the same backside have been more apposite uh, than that. And so uh, many people are desperately searching for a third party alternative. Uh, we interviewed more than once 
uh, the last Green Party candidate in 2016, Dr. Jill Stein, uh, and I was uh, proud uh, to openly support her campaign. And I hope I can do the same again uh, when the Green Party chooses its nominee, which will be quite uh, shortly. Uh, and Howie Hawkins is, I think it'd be fair to say, the leading candidate in the race for that uh, position. And if I'm lucky, Howie Hawkins is on the line now. Howie, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, now, you say it's good to be here, but you lambasted Dr. Jill Stein for her uh, relationship with RT, and yet you contacted us to be on this show this evening. An apparent contradiction. Clear it up, if you will. I didn't lambast her for going on RT. I've been on at least half a dozen times in the course of this campaign. So... I'm not sure what you're referring to. Oh, I'm referring to a much-watched video in which you lambasted a Dr. Jill uh, for going to an RT event in Moscow. I was also at it. Yeah, I thought that uh, what she had to say, which was about international policy, would be ignored. And, uh, you know, that's what happened. They took a picture of her and it was broadcast all over the world like she was sitting there with Putin and uh, General Flynn. And in fact, Putin just sat down at the table for a minute. She didn't really interact with him. So, you know, I just, I thought that wasn't probably the best thing to do in the course of the campaign. It'd be, fair, it'd be fair to say, though, you have a, a rather poor view uh, of President Putin and of uh, today's Russia. Yeah, but I don't buy into the democratic narrative that because whatever they did in the election means that we should escalate the Cold War with Russia, or that we should censor the internet, or that it excuses Hillary Clinton for losing uh, the 2016 election. That was the Electoral College, not Russia that did that. So I'm not in that camp. But you do think that Russia was a malign actor in the 2016 uh, election, because I've seen you say so. Yeah, that's what intelligence services do. The United States does it too. Uh, you know, it's no big surprise. Well, somebody else that you lambasted in the same interview was Julian Assange. Uh, you, uh, you weren't uh, exactly supportive uh, of uh, Julian Assange. Explain why. Well, I'm supportive of the U.S. dropping the charges against him and him being freed. And I've been clear about that from the beginning. I did say that I thought him uh, direct messaging with Donald Trump Jr. during that campaign. I didn't like that. You know, the Trumps represent the most racist reactionary forces in this country. And what about the Syrian president? You were uh, equally scathing uh, about him. Uh, just explain uh, why you take that view, given that uh, the Syrian government is trying to fight off with Russia's help uh, some of the worst head-chopping, throat-cutting fanatics to be found anywhere on the globe? Well, those people should be defeated, the jihadis. There was also an uprising of people demanding bread and freedom nonviolently, and Assad was repressive toward them. That's my criticism of Assad. But you want them to win the war? 
The, the, the jihadis should be defeated, yes. By him? Well, yeah, he's fighting them, and uh, the Russians are helping him. So, yeah, okay, I'm glad we've uh, cleared that up, if we have uh, cleared it up. Uh, let's talk about the uh, main policy planks uh, of your campaign, Howie, and how close you are uh, to getting the, the gig, as it were, as the Green Party nominee. Well, to the latter question, I think we're about 90% of the way to a first uh, round uh, win in the Green Party convention on July 11th. And we expect to get over the top uh, by the end of this coming week. In terms of my policy platform, I've been framing it around three life or death issues. And now we have a fourth, the coronavirus crisis. And I'll talk about that first. The United States has 4% of the world's population and 30% of the COVID-19 deaths because both governing parties in this country are presiding over a failed state. They can't figure out how to test people, trace the contacts, and quarantine those infected, like most organized countries around the world are doing, and have been able to successfully uh, suppress the virus to a great extent. So that's number one. Neither party is putting forward a program. Trump is incompetent and really indifferent, and Biden has been invisible, and when he pops his head up, he's incoherent. He doesn't make clear demands about what we need to do now, so that's one. Second life or death issue is the climate meltdown. And I've been calling since 2010, I was the first candidate in the United States to call for a Green New Deal to transform all our productive systems to zero to negative greenhouse gas emissions and 100% clean energy by 2030. So we have an eco-socialist Green New Deal that will do a lot of this through the public sector, a public energy system, public transportation system, and uh, manufacturing green, uh, or manufacturing green uh, manufacturing equipment so that we can transform our productive systems. Second issue is inequality, or the third issue, third life or death issue. Working class life expectancies in this country are declining. And that's inexcusable. So we call for an economic bill of rights. So everybody has the right to a living wage job, an income above poverty, affordable housing, comprehensive health care, lifelong tuition-free public education, and a secure retirement. And then the last issue that's life or death that none of the presidential candidates in this country are talking about is this new nuclear arms race. We're just about to see the last bilateral treaty between the United States and Russia on nuclear arms, the Strategic Arms Treaty, expire next February 5th, and there are no negotiations going on. So what I'm calling for is uh, tension-reducing initiatives, cut the military budget by 75%, withdraw U.S. troops from these seven shooting wars and all the over 100 countries where special operations uh, take action every year uh, from the foreign, eight, over 800 foreign military bases, pledge no first use of nuclear weapons, disarm to a minimum credible deterrent, and then go to the other nuclear powers and say, we want complete and nuclear, uh, mutual nuclear disarmament. And we'll have the support of the 122 nations that agreed to the text on a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons three years ago. So that's a huge issue that we want to make a top campaign issue. So those, that's the core of my platform and what I'm running on. Well, it's uh, powerful for sure. Uh, Howie, where do you start maybe this all occurred after your platform was drawn up, but you are obviously going to have to deal with it. Uh, what about the, the conduct of the police in the United States? 
everyone all around the world is, uh, can hardly turn on their phones uh, without seeing another video of another police officer uh, murdering another uh, black man. Uh, where's, what's your stand on all of that? Well, I think just like the COVID-19 crisis revealed that this country is a failed state for everybody, uh, what's been exposed since the George Floyd lynching is that we've had a pandemic of racism for centuries and that this country's always been a failed state for black America. So what we're calling for is obviously what they call defunding the police. Stop having the police harass uh, low-income people, people of color for non-criminal offenses, low-level offenses, just to fill the mass incarceration system and transfer those funds uh, to people that can deal with problems like homelessness. Homeless people need a home, not a cop coming and push them along or arrest them for vagrancy. Uh, people with mental health crises or drug addiction need medical treatment, not a police officer. So that's one thing. And the other thing we're talking about is community control of the police. We need elected police commissions with the power to hire and fire the police chief to investigate and discipline officer misconduct and to negotiate contracts with the police unions, which tend to have special provisions in their contracts, which protect officers from accountability. And then the other thing we're calling for is automatic federal investigation and prosecution when the police violate the civil rights of a person, including injury and death. And we call it the Johnny Gamage Law, named after a guy from the neighborhood I'm sitting in named Johnny Gamage, who was suffocated uh, to death by police in Pittsburgh suburbs in 1995 when he was visiting his cousin, also from this neighborhood, who was playing football for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So we need the, the local district attorneys and even the state attorneys general are too close to the local police. They're not distant enough to do a real independent investigation. So we want uh, the Department of Justice to do that. Now, of course, we need somebody other than Bill Barr in charge of the Department of Justice for that to work. Now, finally, and I'm grateful for your time, uh, Howie, and your, your busy schedule. Uh, many people think, I, I'm one of them, I should tell you, uh, that the former governor, Jesse Ventura, would be, a, if you like, a more high-profile uh, candidate for the Green Party. And I know he's in the race, which, uh, by your uh, description, is more or less over. Uh, what, what would you say to... Uh, supporters of uh, Governor Jesse, uh, who think he'd be a good candidate to run? Well, he's not running, and he has said he's going to support the Green Party, so I would urge them uh, to get on board because we have a real opportunity with the Green Party here with this miserable choice between Trump and Biden to have a real impact and to advance our platform, and we get a strong vote in November, and that gives us leverage in the political process going forward. I mean, I've experienced that. I got 5% running against Governor Cuomo in 2014 when he was trying to run up the vote to get ready to run for president. And he couldn't take us for granted. And he had to adapt to what we were demanding. So he accepted three demands he had never supported before. A ban on fracking, a $15 minimum wage, and paid family leave. So we don't have to win the office to have a big impact. And that's what we aim to do as we go through this election. 
Well, best of luck, Howie Hawkins. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. That's Howie Hawkins, uh, the uh, putative Green Party candidate against Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the upcoming presidential election. Well, the protesters in London on Saturday, patriots or right-wing thugs? A, patriots, 31%. B, right-wing thugs, 69%. Get your vote in now. Uh, now, throughout the coronavirus crisis, uh, we have been joined by our very own Moats Medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar, who is a doctor and a surgeon and a solid guy from every single perspective. And he joins us again now on the day, doctor, uh, that uh, Hancock uh, says we, we only had 30-odd deaths. I think it was 34, 39 uh, deaths uh, today. Uh, uh, they're getting on top of it. Uh, do you believe it? Hi, George. Pleasure to be back with you and uh, happy birthday on the, Thank you. the first birthday of the show on this platform. It's great to be with you. Um, in, in terms of um, getting on top of COVID, there's no question that we are coming uh, down the slope of the first peak of the virus. But we know that there's always a decrease uh, in, in the deaths that are reported at the weekend, and that's simply for the reason that there are fewer staff around to report and register them at the weekend, and you find a, a large number of hospital deaths are in fact then registered on the Monday, which is why there's that une uneven distribution of deaths. Doesn't mean that um, fewer people actually are, are you know, genuinely reflected in that number 36. If you look at the last week, there's most days there have been more than 200 people uh, each day uh, who are still succumbing uh, tragically to this uh, pandemic uh, as it's affecting our country. So it is still a problem that is very much with us, though, you know, I totally understand that people are fed up to the back teeth of lockdown, but that's something which is attributable really to the manner in which as we have discussed several times, that we as a, as a nation have dealt with the problem. Um, and I'm afraid that there is still some way to go before we are rid of this topic. Well, there's uh, cabin fever, uh, undoubtedly, uh, amongst significant numbers of uh, British people. There was a mass rave uh, in uh, the Manchester area uh, yesterday uh, in which one young person died from an overdose. Uh, three people were stabbed, and it looked like many hundreds of people were uh, not just not two meters from each other, but were dancing cheek to cheek. Uh, and uh, the stores open tomorrow, the schools having opened, have now closed uh, for the most part, uh, and therefore the stand taken uh, by you and me uh, earlier uh, in this uh, series of interviews that we've done has been vindicated, uh, but the store's opening uh, is going to uh, lead to a very considerable uh, new level of danger if the virus has not died out. Are there any reasons to believe that, I don't know, the sun or the, the heat or the, uh, the extent to which many of us may already have had this and now therefore uh, be immune to it? Are there any reasons to be cheerful? Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I'm always of a cheerful and optimistic disposition, George, but that shouldn't blind us to the fact. So, as we've said last week, 
Still probably only 7% of the British population have had this virus. And on the back of that 7%, the official figures are 41,700. But the excess mortality figure is that 65,000 people have died from coronavirus uh, in the United Kingdom. And that's a very large uh, figure, which would, if we took the proper excess mortality figure, put us at a, as, at a rate of over 900 deaths per million of the population, and still less than 10% of the population been exposed. So it, it, there's a long way to run. If we look at just uh, random testing of people who are currently infected, then it's estimated between 40 and 50,000 people at any one time currently have the virus, so a large number of people. And the way in which we have got to these relatively low numbers of deaths, though, really 200 people dying per day is a large number still, George, and we shouldn't be blinded by one single you know, Sunday of 36. It's really most days this week, it's been 200 people or more dying uh, of the coronavirus. And I can tell you from my own experience in hospital, there are, I mean, there, there are sporadic outbreaks on wards and within the hospital, which reflects the fact that this virus is still very much prevalent uh, in, in the population. And so there's an ongoing debate about our factors and the measures we can take in order to minimize the risk of, uh, you know, really a kind of exponential growth phase reestablishing itself. And you can quite clearly see from all of the debate going on within government, on the one hand, there's pressure from business to reopen, to try and get back to, towards some kind of normal, though we have witnessed um, the onset of a massive global recession, which is something we will be dealing with for a long time to come. And there's increasing talk about uh, in renewed austerity measures, which will pay for the furlough scheme and all the rest of the 300 billion plus bailout of business. Um, so, you know, really, uh, as soon as we take our foot off the brake, um, we'll be dependent on much greater testing and isolation. Now, there's some indication that testing has increased, but there's so much misinformation about testing that's very hard to pin down the real number of individual people rather than the, the alleged number of tests that have been performed. So I guess the reason to be optimistic is now we do have testing, we have a much greater testing capacity. Um, we have geared our health system in a way to deal with coronavirus. But the downside of that, of course, is that we have turned off a lot of the normal day-to-day -day elective activity which itself will have an impact on the health of our population. So there is every reason to fear that we are rather closer to the beginning of this problem than the end, George. Uh, in which case only a vaccine uh, would uh, put people's uh, minds at rest and perhaps save us. How goes the uh, fight to find a vaccine? So the trials are ongoing. As we've said, there are over 100 trials uh, worldwide. Uh, the two which tend to dominate the headlines, there are a couple in China, one in particular by Sinovac, which is in the stage three trials. And they have developed a vaccine, which they're in the phase three test of. They've shown it to be safe uh, on large scale trials, and they've shown it to be efficacious, producing uh, you know, detectable levels of antibody to the spike protein of the coronavirus in more than 90% of the, of the patients that they've vaccinated. So it's a, it's a pretty impressive um, uh, result, and they are getting close to a stage where they can say it, it has worked in large-scale trials. They're engaged in that now. They're performing those large-scale trials principally in Brazil, 
uh, where we've seen increasing numbers in Brazil, in Russia, in India. Uh, and again, we've only really begun to appreciate how widespread the virus is there. Uh, the other um, vaccine which uh, has got a lot of uh, press coverage is that uh, partnered between AstraZeneca uh, and the Jenner Institute at Oxford uh, University. Uh, there was some equivocation about its effic uh, efficaciousness and the trials that I initially looked at in their, um, in their animal trial in particular. Um, but it does seem that they are engaged in wider scale trial. They've secured a lot of deals to produce many, many doses of the vaccine. So they've secured deals to, to, to sell 400 million vaccines to the United States, 300 million this week to the European Union, principally Germany, France, uh, the Netherlands uh, and Italy. And they already have a pre-existing deal for 300 million doses for the UK. So I very much hope that that will prove efficacious, but the jury is out and they also are moving their uh, preparing for their phase three trial, which will be principally held in the United States and Brazil. The United States, as we know, ha is responsible for two million of the world's almost now eight million cases and very many of the deaths. So that, that's the state of play. Nothing ready for uh, consumption. I remain uh, you know, sanguine uh, that increased antibody testing will allow us to see who has and hasn't had the virus. And then an effective vaccine, if it's developed, absolutely can represent a way forward for the world from this you know, really rather perilous current state of affairs, George. Now, uh, help me with this. Uh, obviously, the AstraZeneca uh, uh, product is being produced for profit, uh, but the Chinese initially said uh, that they would make their vaccine available uh, at cost price uh, to the world. Are they still saying that? And in which case, where do I get my Chinese vaccine? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. And that, that will be kind of down to the local procurement policy of any individual nation. I'm absolutely sure that the majority of, of, um, you know, of the richest uh, nations will buy the for-profit vaccine from their own companies because they are very closely allied. Uh, the government and business uh, in these countries is extremely closely allied. But you're right, um, the Chinese Premier appeared at the, I think it was the 39th um, conference of the World Health Organization and made a very sober and, um, you know, sanguine speech in which he pointed out, you know, some of the lies that have been told about his country, but also said that they were making great progress towards um, uh, producing a viable vaccine. And to, to quote his words, he said that would be uh, made available as a public good, much in the same way as they've made free of charge all of their research and the public health measures. It, it still remains the case, you know, that China's great success and other countries' great success in dealing with the vaccine have been the public health measures, the infrastructure measures, and the manner in which their government and administration mobilized to protect the lives of their people and put the, the, the consideration of people's lives first. But they have said they will produce the vaccine at cost, you're, you're quite right, and that they would make it available for those who want it. But it will be up to our local health system to say whether or not they will mm. take that and administer uh, it to the population. Yeah, you don't need to be Einstein to work out uh, what that choice will be. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always, What's the morale now? What's the feeling? What's the uh, chatter in the canteen and on the wards uh, amongst your colleagues in the service? Uh, do they think that they 
are past the worst or do they feel that the worst is yet to come? So it's unquestionably the case that there are fewer people uh, with coronavirus in hospital. Um, the number of wards dedicated as you know, pure coronavirus wards are becoming fewer. The number of uh, medical doctors and ITU doctors involved only with treating coronavirus is becoming fewer. Services are planning and making plans to go back to normal service, but equally there are ongoing sporadic outbreaks. It's affecting everything we do. We've got a vastly reduced volume of elective surgery, and it seems that we're heading towards a situation where there are as many as 10 million patients who are on the NHS waiting list for appointments and procedures. Uh, when going into this uh, uh, coronavirus crisis, there were 2 million. So it does highlight one thing. You know, we're told that the NHS has not been overwhelmed. And certainly the Conservative Party and their daily briefings, the ministerial um, uh, uh, leaders of those briefings are constantly pointing out that the NHS has not been overwhelmed and therefore that is the reason we can downgrade our response to coronavirus. Really, the statistics show you that that is not the case. The NHS was overwhelmed. It wasn't totally overwhelmed. We were able to treat people and admit them, but only by really stopping all normal activity of the National Health Service. And really that amounts to having been overwhelmed. And it shows you the results of ongoing privatization, the results of decreased bed capacity, and the legacy that we are leaving, really, of an undercapacity to deal with the day-to-day -day health needs of the British population. And coronavirus has exacerbated that and, you know, held the mirror up to it, but has not been the sole agent no, no, of, of course. Rather than policy. Well, look, uh, uh, take uh, from me to you and through you to the NHS uh, the congratulations of all right-thinking people uh, for everything that you have done, but on this occasion for saving the life of the great national treasure Michael Rosen, uh, who might even be listening uh, to the show this evening. This former children's laureate, uh, children's author, uh, this uh, mountain of an intellect and a man. Uh, he spent a hundred days at death's door, uh, but thanks to the NHS, he has survived, and he's even back on Twitter. And uh, may God strengthen him. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ranjit, for everything and for your appearance on the show this evening. I uh, appreciate that. Poll number two, who should I address as next week? A, James Dean, a disappointing 11. Shows I'm getting old. Uh, B, Elvis, not in the Vegas years, I hope, 32%. Uh, but Colombo well out in uh, front, as I suspected he would be at 57%. Other suggestions are James Bond. Uh, have we got a picture of him? Well, that, Sean Connery, pushy galore. Uh, Uncle Albert? Ah, oh, come on. My beard is never like that. Dame Edna Everidge? I never cross-dress. Trust me on that. Uh, and uh, there are many, many others. <laughs> Extraordinary. Uh, uh, Danny Blaine says, Uncle Albert with trigger suit on. Thank you uh, very much. Let's take a call from Ireland, uh, from Dave. Go ahead, Dave. Hello, uh, George. Happy well. I, I was listening to your monologue. Yes. And I was interested in you talking about, and I, and I don't know whether I got this right, so I need to ask the question. Were you saying that Rhodes had slaves in Rhodesia? 
I'm saying that Rhodes systemized a system of segregation which paved the way to apartheid, not least in the country called after him, Rhodesia. Oh, I don't have a problem with that. That's, that, that's fine. I thought I'd, I'd heard you say that, well, he, that there was slavery uh, he, in Rhodesia, he, he, but, you know, no, no, uh, slavery is... He was responsible for... Slavery is a for, very specific uh, term. Yeah, yeah, no, he was responsible for mass deaths amongst Africans, and he invented, you could say, uh, a system of apartheid which was later used ruthlessly in Rhodesia and in South Africa. That's what I was saying about him. Okay, that's fine. As long as, you know, because um, I was born and grew up in the country, um, and we certainly wasn't utopia, uh, but I, it just concerns me that, um, like we had the, the white nutcase in, in America that used Rhodesia as a reference point. And then I other love, people on the I, other I, side. I love side. Uh, Zimbabwe, by the way, Dave. I've visited it many times. Uh, I, 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 I love it. I, I love absolutely it. Absolutely love, love it. The country. And I miss it. And it is Zimbabwe. It is, it is, it is not Rhodesia. But, you know, unfortunately, um, it's, it's not doing well right now. No, you know? it's, it's, uh, it's uh, got many, uh, many problems. But, but there's, the... too many, there's too many people around the world who don't understand the country and the people. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful country. It's beautiful people. Totally. Uh, its history is not perfect. Um, you know, we have Rhodesians like my dad and my my uncle, who flew a Spitfire um, in the in uh, the Battle of Britain. His his Spitfire was called the Dominant Factor. We cannot march in remembrance of our fathers and uncles who fought in the Second World War. So there's a lot of bitterness. Well, even and, uh, wasn't Ian Smith a pilot at the Battle of Britain? Ian, Ian Smith was a pilot. He was shot down five times. He worked with the Italian resistance. So, you know, there's, there's shades of grey, unfortunately. Well, uh, history, um, yeah, history ain't no morality play, Dave. That's right. Which part of the country are you from? I'm from Bulawayo. From I, the south, I, I knew so you were going to say that. And it's one of my favourite <laughs> places. In all the world. Do you know, George, here's, here's the con look, I don't have a problem with anyone saying what you said about roads. No problem at all. I have a problem with, and they start talking about slavery in Rhodesia. But you know that at the end of the day, you, you know this, that Rhodes, when he died, his body was, was taken back to the Metopus. And he got an, an Amanda Belli um, escort. So the, so the Amanda Belli in the area went down and protected his body and let it rest in the Metopus. Now, I, I don't understand that, you know, but... No, but well... Uh, it, it's, 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 called the Stockholm. it's called the Stockholm Syndrome, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your call. I appreciate it. I've got to go to my hometown. Andy is in Dundee. Go ahead, Andy. Uh, happy birthday, George. Thank you, son. Uh, yeah, mate, I'm for... I'm, I'm following up because uh, you seem to be eulogising Churchill quite a bit, like, uh, and what it is is my grandfather was a prisoner of war for four and a half years in Japan, uh -huh. and he blamed it on Churchill. He never Why? fired a shot in anger and he, while he was in the army. What happened was, when the Japs overrun Singapore, there was boats full of thousands and thousands of British troops going into Singapore into the harbour. Mm -hmm. And Churchill knew 
before they, they docked in that harbour that the Japs had overrun it. And he told the soldiers on their boat to surrender to the Japs. I don't think that's true. Mr. My grandfather, my grandfather yeah. hated them yeah. since then. They yeah, like, yeah. Well, a lot of people in Dundee hated him and turned his car over. I can't. I can't he got he, chased uh, through the streets he, and that he, like that. He, 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 he vowed that uh, the grass would grow uh, in the streets of Dundee, as indeed it then did, after he was uh, defenestrated as the MP for Dundee. Uh, all, all I've got time to say is this, Andy. I'm eulogising only... Uh, the period from May of 1940 to June of 1941. And know, it's, not a small, it's not a small eulogy because if it were not for those 13 months, we wouldn't be having this conversation now, Andy. The, uh, war, would have been, the war would have been over and Hitler would uh, have been in London. Have you heard it turned out? Have you heard tell the boats to turn around and come back to Britain? I wouldn't even be making this phone call, George. Yeah, but I, I think you're quite, uh, you're factually wrong uh, about that. But I don't have time to get the chapter and verse. Maybe we can talk about it another time, Andy. The very uh, best to you. Uh, my cake is looking ever more tempting uh, to me. But I've been told that the smoke alarms in this studio are so sensitive that Boyd I Dixon cannot says, uh, light a candle the uh, because otherwise the Boyd whole Dixon will says Mark Haley. Mark Haley was a fine-looking man. Aria Scola says, One private eye like Colombo, I'm blocking shots like Motombo. I don't know what any of this means. Boyd Dixon then gives me another Rangers uh, uh, suggestion. Trevor Stephen uh, and uh, so on. He also gives me Terry Horlock. My goodness, that's a name from the past. Uh, jobs Not War, says Wurzel Gummidge. Thanks, mate. Uh, uh, and uh, Fremo, 515, says your American guests are almost incoherent this week. Let's hope next year is better. And uh, uh, somebody says Andy Pandey. Somebody says Thatcher was on meths. Oh, dear. Some of the people sending these things in are on uh, meths. Lisa Ann uh, on tweets says, you get all nasty people in all races. That will never stop. If anything, after the last two weeks, it's going to get a lot worse. And Flint, quarantined in Colombia, says what you said in regards to yesterday's protesters. This is incredibly gullible of you. These same football hooligans are used to delegitimize Brexit as a racist endeavor something you know to be false, yet you swallow this simplistic narrative wholesale. What have I swallowed wholesale? The whole world has seen these so-called football supporters uh, Sieg Heiling and goose-stepping and pouring vicious racist insults on black people. Uh, the whole world saw it. In what sense have I swallowed it? Wholesale. Uh, you will never know, says about yesterday's protesters, low IQs, that's about it. Stop stealing. They were paid to do it. Were they? Do tell me more. Who paid them to do it? You'll be on a scoop if you have any basis for that allegation that these people were paid 
to act like far-right thugs yesterday. How extraordinary. Uh, David is in London. Go ahead, David. Hi, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Nice to hear from you. Uh, it's always nice to speak to you, too. Um, George, I don't know. I did my, this is my question, but it's just to refer back to the last time I spoke to you. Uh, the answer to the question that you had asked me was Neuer Ranchid Shaitun. Do you remember the, the, the conversation we had last time, George? Remind me, who is that? Uh, David Valentine, George. And um, so uh, we were discussing uh, the statue of Frederick Engels, who, which was put up in, by the Manchester Labour Party. In oh, Manchester. yes, yes. And I had said to you that Frederick Engels... Had you said he'd, he, he wanted the genocide against Scots. Scots, Basques, Bretons, uh, the Celts basically was, uh, was German. He was a Prussian ancestry. Um, so, yeah. So, I, with all the pulling down of statues, George, do you think he, and obviously Marx and Engels were both racist themselves, do you think these statues should come down? <laughs> well, I, I'm not aware That's of That's not my question anyway, George. That's not my question. Let me are there, are there, no, are there any statues of Karl Marx in Britain? Yeah, I think Hyde Park. Where? And Frederick Engels, obviously, in Manchester. Hyde there's Park, no, no uh, as far as I know, there's no Karl Marx statue in Hyde there is, Park. There is, George. Where? Oh, there's, a, there's, definitely, there's definitely a statue. It might not be Hyde Park, but there's definitely a statue in the UK. You may be, you may be confusing Park. it with his grave. Oh, maybe may his grave. may well be his grave. Well, we're, surely, be, we're, we're surely not advocating. We're surely, we're surely not advocating. Not advocating tearing, tearing, tearing someone's grave, grave down. That's not yet, George. <laughs> Seems like the, the right direction. Well, I can assure you that neither Marx nor Engels were racist. But anyway, that's not why you've called. Go ahead. No, no. So uh, Hamza Yusuf says there's too many white people uh, in, uh, in Scottish uh, higher, like the Justice Secretary, the Justice Departments and uh, the Judiciary and uh, other aspects. Obviously, Scotland has a 95% white um, uh, population. There's too um, many I don't stupid know people, Hamza I know that. Too many stupid, that there's too many stupid people. Yeah, yeah. Well, not me, George. I'm on the ball, pal. No, no, uh, no I mean, so, I'm uh, talking about running Scotland. Too many stupid oh, yes, people. Uh -huh. Well, I don't, I'm not disagreeing there, George. I think we're both on the same page there. Yes, Stumers. I think, uh, I think it's a new let down from what it was. Yeah. Under Gone Alex. downhill. Gone downhill. Yeah. No, so, last, uh, one, last bringing one. In this new hate speech. You're bringing in these new hate speech rules, George. They're only going to apply to men, uh, obviously, uh, misogyny. Is uh, going to be deemed as a hate speech with up to seven years in jail, George. Um, so I'm not. We're a bit worried about you in case you get banged up up here if you come up and say anything untoward. Well, uh, I'm through. against Nicola Sturgeon not because she's a woman. In fact, being a woman's uh, the only good thing. The only good thing about her. Uh, I'm against her yeah. for a hundred reasons, none of which have yeah. anything to do with her gender. Uh huh. And uh, there's been allegations that she might be a lesbian, and uh, that's oh, no, you need to get rid of that. Kids. No, 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 no. We're not having. No, no, no. We're not having uh, any of that. Ban him uh, from the show, will you? First, he's alleging uh, that Engels <laughs> wanted to commit genocide against the Scots, and then he's making uh, completely uh, unacceptable uh, attempts to. Um, out uh, people's sexuality, uh, either falsely or 
uh, properly, and we can't uh, have that. And uh, that has to be stricken uh, from the record. Clear the decks, there's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Norma, welcome. Hello, George. I wanted to give a bit of praise and say happy birthday to most. Because, you. you know, I've learned so much. And, um, you know, maybe there's going to be a special birth for you and your wife very soon. Too. Yeah, only five weeks to go, Norma. Is that right? Oh, I thought it was uh, years. Five weeks, five weeks on paper, but... As Bill Shankly says, football's played on grass. <laughs> uh, so uh, you can never count on the, uh, on the due date, uh, but well, uh, you, you, five, no. weeks, five weeks. You'll have to get another cake then, won't you? Definitely. You've got a nice cake there. I do. It's a very nice looking one. She, yeah. she, she arranged all of that, uh, but unfortunately yeah. we're not able to, to light the candle. No, never mind. Well, I, but I you've been with I... us a lot longer than one year, of course. You were oh, a legend. Yeah. You were a legend long ago. Uh, you've always made me feel so welcome, and I thank you for that. How my Twitter follows, you know. I mean, at my age, I keep on about my age, but um, I feel a sense of belonging and me to feel an individual who matters. And that's quite important, you know. Well, you're much loved. You see, the reason you're a legend... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no. The reason you're a legend is because everybody looks forward to hearing your words of wisdom uh, every week. So uh, may uh, God grant you and your husband long life and long membership of the Open University uh, of okay, the Airways. God bless you, Norma. Thank you so much indeed. Adil is in Oregon in the United States. Let's hear from him. Adil. Hi, Mr. Galley. Happy birthday to most. Uh, thank, thank you. you again thank for, you very much. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, I just want to say that um, this past few weeks has really been, for me, a, a time of reflection and just deep consternation and uh, at the state of, of affairs in, in, in the country. Um, I feel that you know, just looking at the way some of the officials have responded to the to, to BLM, which is which is something that was just you know was compounded by COVID nineteen, uh, the BLM, uh, you know, the, the murder and and the and the protests that has have erupted. I feel are the indignation that many people feel. I just feel like it's just completely justified and righteous. And you know, viewing some of the responses from some officials. You know, there's been two types of protests. One of the, you know, one of them has been kneeling towards a flag. The other has been laying down in prostration and 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 saying the words of a dying man, and and then looking at how officials, you know, their demonstration of solidarity to the public is to kneel for the length of time that a man was being murdered, eight minutes and twenty six seconds. That was. That was their way of signaling solidarity. And I just, you know, I just said to myself, my God, like, this is just, this is well, just people are uh, People are searching for ways to express their anguish. Adil, it's, it's worth making this point at this stage. The young 17-year-old girl, a black girl, a black teenager, who filmed the lynching, of George Floyd with all the uh, inherent danger to herself for doing so is a hero of, uh, of Rosa Parks uh, stature in this picture 
Because if that young girl had been too afraid uh, to take that video, uh, then we might never have seen, we might never have heard of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is, it's, it just begs the question as to what are, you know, what are we not seeing? What is not well, being exactly, documented? Yeah. Imagine, you know, imagine. Like, anyway, thanks, Adil. Uh, the hour is against us. One last call, I think. Sarkar in Glasgow on Donald Trump's birthday. Go ahead, Sarkar. Oh, George, good evening. Long time, but fantastic show. And one happy one-year birthday, George, for the Thank show. Thank you. Thank you. George, I have a very important question. Like, see, off late, you've been seeing protests, counter-protests all over the world with relations to what happened with George Floyd. Like today, I'm in Glasgow. I know something what happened in George Square was not the most pleasing. What I'm more worried is, see, the U U.S. election is sometime in November. See the way the protests have been going on. Do you think that these protests would be hijacked and played, playing into uh, Donald Trump's hands and by mobilizing all the far-right people to vote for him? Because a few days ago, he tweeted law and order. This was something which was used by Nixon way back just before his election campaign, I think, to, during the 1960s problems which happened. Mm. Could there be a possibility? Because I don't know. I, I there, is, like uh, there is, and I alluded to it in my short uh, that you saw earlier, that, in fact, uh, this is being weaponized uh, by oh. the right in America uh, to turn this into a false dichotomy of black people versus all the others, uh, of, uh, uh, of anti-fascists against all the others. Uh, it's being weaponized into a law and order election. Uh, and in that picture, Trump hopes uh, that people will uh, see him as the champion of law and order, which, if you know anything about Trump and his business dealings, uh, is a rum uh, uh, estimation. Uh, of the kind of man that he is, but it might work. Uh, it might uh, be the case uh, that Donald Trump is re-elected in November, in which case, uh, fasten your seatbelts, don't you think? Oh, my God. I mean, seriously, that Betty Davis line, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Trust me, George, believe me, I've been really disturbed with what I've been seeing, and I personally don't know if the world can take any more of any dictators or any right-wing fanatics as leaders. Honestly, that's my honest opinion. Thank you very much, Sarkar. Alas, that's the uh, last call we'll be able to take. Uh, Nigat says, watching yesterday's protests, what is wrong with Britain? Jason says, if the so-called patriots didn't go extreme right into fascism, there'd be no need for Antifa. If they paid more attention to history in school, we'd avoid the stupidness of fascism. Sorry, of communism and fascism, Jason says. And Kenny Ross says, Antifa are a handful of disenfranchised white kids. 40 years ago, we called them punks. Uh, I've not got much time uh, for anything else except to say uh, that uh, it's been a marvellous show uh, for me. I hope it was for you and if it was come back next week at the same time in the same place and bring another viewer bring another listener uh, with you it is our birthday it's been a happy uh, birthday despite the insults against my uh, garb my uh, <laughs> my attire and i'm going to enjoy now this special birthday cake may we stay here for many many more years and may you stay 
with me. It's been marvellous. Come back next week at the same time.